Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great. It is Monday, the 26th of April. They are starting to relax some of the uh, COVID restrictions here in Scotland, so we can go out and do things that we couldn't do before. And the Boston Red Sox are top of the American League East, and your New York Yankees are at the bottom. So life couldn't be better, David. Season is young. Um, (laughs) Right, and beer gardens are opening, so you can go out and celebrate Frank or all kinds of good stuff. Right. Uh, among things that some people are celebrating uh, is a vote in the House last week uh, that would have uh, uh, to approve statehood for uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, and so we wanted to discuss, and now it's off, obviously off over to the Senate where its fate is, is up in the air. Uh, we want to talk about what D.C. statehood would look like, what it means, what some of the potential problems with D.C. statehood uh, could be. Uh, but DC is kind of weird in terms of how it fits into the entire sort of uh, system of states that we've got, Frank. Because it's not a state right now, but it's also not a territory. It's kind of its own special thing. How did we end up, Frank, going back to, to, to the sort of establishment of all this, this weird capital that's both not in a state, but not of a state, but its own kind of weird thing? How, how do we end up with that? Well, actually, um, David, before we, we address that, I think we need to just uh, kind of make the shorthand case in favor of statehood, which is the fact that D.C.'s got 700,000 people in it. Um, they are not properly represented in Congress. They have, And we'll get to the, the mm. representation issue in a second. They've got one delegate, but uh, that delegate is non-voting in the House of Representatives, no representation in the Senate. And crucially, and we've heard a lot of this in the past week, uh, D.C. has more residents than Vermont and Wyoming and roughly the same number of residents as Alaska. So although it would be a small state, it would be bigger than two existing states, which between them have four senators. So that's the shorthand version yeah, of the yeah. case for it, which is important context for all this. There's also the fact, I think, that the, um, uh, you know, this is a political question as much as anything, and the Democrats, uh, I think, are frustrated because they're 50 senators come from far more populous states than the 50 Republican senators, and they feel with some justification that this is undemocratic and, and unfair. And so that, that's important backdrop to all this. Mm. So how do we get here? Uh, well, in terms of the Dist- District of Columbia, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution uh, basically said that Congress will be in charge of the seat of government, which should not exceed 10 miles square. And so in 1790, everyone who's seen Hamilton or listened to the soundtrack will know the dinner table bargain and the debate about where to put the capital of the United States uh, that took place in 1790. Long story short, and it's, it's not terribly interesting, essentially a compromise is reached to move the capital from New York, where it was, to Philadelphia for 10 years, and then to a new federal district to, to be created on the Potomac River out of territory, basically ceded by the states of Maryland and Virginia, Mm. 10 square miles. um, And it was a square on both sides of the Potomac River, essentially. uh, And that created the District of Columbia. The legislation was adopted in 1790. The city, which was called the federal city before it was called Washington, named after Washington, was 
built over the course of the 19th century. It's not terribly impressive in 1800 when it becomes the formal capital of the United States, so but wait, it's wait, always- Frank, what, what sorry, wrong with, what's wrong with Philadelphia? What's wrong with New York? These are perfectly fine cities. Why, why didn't they say like, why we need to build a whole new place to, to do it? What's the, what's the idea? Well, my Bostonian response is the people in New York and Philadelphia aren't very nice and they're not fit to host the capital of the United States. <laughs> okay, so we put it in uh, Boston, Frank. We put it. <laughs> ah, well, there we go. That, but, but what I would have said, David, is actually I think Boston, New York, or Philadelphia would have been a fitting capital of the United States, New York in particular, as the nation's economic and cultural center. And it galls me to admit that um, would have made a perfectly appropriate uh, capital of the United States. And this case for Philadelphia is equally, it was equally strong, certainly in 1790. But there was, a, there, there are a couple of things at work here. First of all, there was a concern, especially on the part of Jeffersonian Republicans about cities in general and the influence and the baneful influence of cities and cities were seen as sources of corruption and immorality. And uh, if, if, you're, if your republic is to be based on virtue, cities are not places where people are terribly virtuous. So you don't put the capital in the, in the biggest city in the country as they do in normal places. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. that's part of the thinking. The other is it's giving too much power. Of course, the seat of, you know, it's called a seat of power for a reason. Uh, there was concern about putting it in again, places and states, New York and Pennsylvania, respectively, at that point, which were already pretty powerful within the Union. Virginia is the most populous state at this time. We're basically putting it on Virginia's doorstep. It's basically part of Virginia to a certain extent uh, under this new thing. And it's a power grab by the Virginians. Jefferson and Washington didn't agree on everything. They did agree on this. They thought this would be a great idea and would help make Alexandria, which we'll talk about in a minute, mm. the kind of entrepot for the entire country. We talked about that a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about public um, works and so on. So uh, it, it's partly ideological, it's partly political. This is always about politics, of course, about where they're gonna locate the capital. Uh, but, and so they, they reach this compromise. It's also at that point, you have to think of the United States as being long and thin, okay? It's mm -hmm. 1500 miles long. It's not as wide as it would subsequently become. And so the Potomac, what became Washington DC is in, terms of where the settled population lives, it's the kind of geographic center of the country as well. If you think of a country that stretches from basically Georgia to Maine, but with most of the population concentrated along the coast or certainly the region east of the Appalachian Mountains, what becomes Washington DC is centrally located as well. So it, okay. there are a number of reasons for that. Well, and I guess, it's not the craziest well, yeah, I guess it, it was thinking through that sort of uh, equilibrium Point. I guess there are lots of states at that point who move their capitals to places that are in the middle of the state for that reason. So like Raleigh, yeah, that's right. as, as, as an example, where they say, well, we're going to put the capital here just because it's equidistant from the points, rather, even if it doesn't have any actual people yet. Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah you might ask, you might ask, David, why is Albany the capital of New York? And, you know, New yeah, York exactly. isn't even the capital of its own state, let alone, let alone of the United States. And, and again, these are usually political reasons. It's the capital There's of the real... world, Frank. It doesn't need to <laughs> yeah. bother with the small things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the anyway. Manhattan shows through. Uh, <laughs> and so, so um, but this is, but this is, you know, there's a real tension in the early Republic. There's a real fear of cities. And to mm. some extent, there's a thread that runs through American political culture. To this very day, there are people who fear cities as sort of being disproportionately uh, powerful, but also alien and threatening. And, mm -hmm. and, and this, this impulse is, exists in the United States uh, 
in its at the time of its foundation. So so there's a, there are a lot of reasons for this, but it does mean that the District of Columbia, as it will become known mm. as, is has this rather anomalous. Um, uh, kind of status within the United States, because according to the Constitution, it will be governed directly by Congress. So it, if you will, it, it is it is different hmm. than other places. There are, at this point, the United States had lots of, had, had state claims and um, had treaty um, claims, had, had treaty rights, I guess, so rights was a problematic way to phrase this, to lots of Western territory. But yeah. there was that territory is different in the sense that Congress will create a, a, a system by which those territory that territory can be converted into states. That's DC is not like that. Yeah. Now, but, but 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 I think from the very beginning though, like it creates its own this sort of anomalous condition creates uh, you know problems because you know there are people who are living in the District of Columbia when it's created and named as the national capital. And those people lose their right to vote in 1801. I mean, there's actually a petition to Congress where they say, look, a year ago, we could vote in the states of Maryland and Virginia, and, and now we can't. Didn't we just fight a war against Britain for not being able to be taxed without being able to the right to vote? Um, you know, in some ways, so the issues that are sort of, as you pointed out earlier, you know, the issues that sort of are, are pushing for statehood were, were true from the very beginning. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a, yeah, I think that's an unanswerable argument, actually. I mean, that, that is true. And, it, you know, you've been to Washington many times, as have I. It's one I of the cities, there. it's one of the cities in America. I love, it's one of my favorite cities mm -hmm. in America. Uh, and you'll, you'll have seen the license plate that say no taxation without representation. Uh, you know, that, that is a slogan from the American Revolution or attributed to the American Revolution. And it certainly is a slogan that, that some people in D.C. who want, want D.C. statehood, mm. um, it's an argument that they make to this very day. No, to be sure. I mean, I, I mean there's a couple of questions that are sort of tied in together with, with statehood. I think you know, one is this, you know, statehood itself. The second is about home rule, about sort of who actually is in charge of DC. Uh, and the third really has to do with, you know, is it going to have some kind of representation in, either in Congress or in the Electoral College that's separate from or just and distinct from, from statehood? And I think you'll see that sort of throughout our discussion, sort of those issues being woven into it. Um, because one of the things that I think that happens when DC is formed is, is Congress originally says, oh, we're in charge of this thing. Do we really want to be in charge of this thing? Uh, and, and initially they say, well, actually, we kind of don't because mm -hmm. it's a lot of work running a city in addition to running a country. So they, you know, in the, at least in the antebellum period, DC has its uh, own mayor. In fact, they have three different mayors in DC. There's one mayor for uh, the, the capital part of DC there's another mayor for uh, Georgetown, which was a pre-existing settlement in, in, in the district, uh, and one for Arlington on, on the other side of the river. Um, but one of the things we're going to see, though, as we sort of go through this, is that they have that sort of local control until they decide to take it away. Uh, and so these are sort of always sort of contentious issues about who is in charge of D.C. and, and uh, who, who gets to call the shots about um, local government, if there is any. And, and David, to illustrate this, we saw mm. some of the problems with this system to this very day mm. 
on January 6th of this year in terms of the law enforcement response to the insurrection and the attack on the Capitol. And, and there, one of the issues that's become quite clear in the, in the aftermath of that is it wasn't clear exactly who had jurisdiction mm. or, you know, the governor of Maryland was prepared to send in, in um, law enforcement um, uh, individuals from Maryland and then mm. send the National Guard in if necessary, but he was unable to do that because the federal government did not ask for help and the federal government, you know, had control. Yeah, of it. Yeah. There, there, were, there were, well, the, the, the right and the wrong of all that in terms of the decisions that were made is, is still yet to come out uh, completely, yeah. but there were, there, but jurisdictional problems yeah. complicated, complicated that, that story. That's, that's so, you know, the, uh, that's, uh, and that's a issue about the National Guard because in every other jurisdiction that the governor has has the authority to call, call it the National Guard. Um, but what's happened in D.C. is that often you know, the, the president can call it the National Guard for D.C. like uh, they did during some of the Black Lives Matter protests last summer over the objections of the highest ranking elected official from D.C., which I guess would be probably the mayor. Um, so they get called out for that, but they don't get called out on January 6th. Uh, so, so the, the the degree of local control is, is something that 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 DC residents are very concerned about. And all of these anomalies, one could argue, and I think uh, pretty persuasively, mm. strengthen the case in favor of statehood to, to right. try and remove these anomalies. So, so, this is the crucial backdrop to a lot of this. Sorry, go ahead, David. Now, now, the Constitution says, and when they originally established it, DC was actually bigger than it is now, because DC used to include uh, what is now. Arlington, Virginia. Uh, that was part of the, the federal district. Uh, and I think it's worth talking about how Arlington is no longer part of DC. Because uh, I think that's yeah, some of the issues it, it, that are involved here. Yeah. So if you look at a map of DC today, if you look at a map of the District of Columbia, it appears to be a square. You see a right angle. Hmm. If, you, if you look on the to the northeast in, in what was Maryland, and then the Potomac River seems to border um, the other bits. And so, yeah. it, but it used to be a whole square. You it used know, to be it, a whole square. It yeah. used to be a whole square. And so that territory was retroceded. David, this is from your period in the 1840s. Yes. So t tell us about the retrocession of Alexandria. Okay. Arlington. Well, it, it's, yeah, it's the same thing, basically. Um, yeah. The, so this was the territory that Virginia donated to be part of the, the, the capital uh, back in 1800. Uh, and the people in Arlington were not necessarily happy being part of, of the Capitol for several reasons. Some of it has to do with the fact that actually all of the federal buildings were on the other side of the river, so they weren't getting that benefit that the people on the other side of the river were. Some of it has to do with electoral politics within the state of Virginia. So there were some elements about that. There was a canal they wanted built in Arlington that the federal government wasn't interested in paying for, but the state of Virginia was. Uh, but above and beyond all those issues, one of the big concerns for the people in Arlington, or at least for some of the people in Arlington, especially some very powerful people in Arlington, was there was discussion about abolishing the slave trade in the U.S. Capitol. And ultimately, they end up abolishing the slave trade in the U.S. Capitol with the Compromise of 1850. But there were discussions going on prior to that about uh, closing that trade, which was enormously profitable for uh, some traffickers and human beings, uh, both in the 
uh, Maryland side of the river and on the Virginia side of the river. Uh, and those slave traders in Arlington worried that they would be cut out of that trade uh, as a consequence of this, this potential um, reform. Uh, and so they also pushed for rejoining uh, Virginia so that they could continue uh, the slave trade, which in fact they did. Uh, so that that's part of the reason. Those you know, so a whole bunch of reasons, but the the slave issue was the primary reason why why the residents of Arlington pushed for rejoining Virginia, uh, which Congress approves uh, in 1846 and it's effective in 1847, uh, just a few years before the compromise that ended the slave trade in Virginia in D.C. itself. So so David, this is and this is always this is called the retrocession, right? Yes. So so that phrase comes up in the contemporary debates as we'll get to in a moment, but. Uh, I don't know much about this. Um, the voting Congress was it along kind of partisan lines? Was it along geographic lines? Was it a was it a was this yet another proxy fight over slavery and the and the slave trade? How, how did that vote? Make, do you know anything about the? the yeah, so, so uh, there, there, it was a. There were there were lots of issues at the time in D.C. itself over. The disjunction between, obviously, this is a fairly uh, acrimonious period politically. There is oftentimes a disjuncture between who was in charge of the local government in D.C. versus the federal government. Sometimes Congress would be controlled by the Democrats and the Whigs would be in charge of local government. And so uh, there was a, a, some acri acrimony between uh, the D.C. government and, and Congress, and that sort of fed into this, this Arlington debate. Uh, it was pretty um, both sectional and partisan, the vote in Congress and the debates over it. Uh, but some people in D.C. Were, were happy to be rid of Arlington because they, they, uh, they believed sapping the city of money. There was some budgetary issues that were happening at the same time that was causing some consternation in Congress. So, so it was um, an overlap of a variety of number of different factors there. Uh, the Civil War, you know, thinking about sort of this middle 19th century period, the Civil War fundamentally changes D.C. It goes from being this essentially sleepy little town that's largely abandoned for half of the year to being an actual city during the Civil War for somewhat obvious reasons. There's a huge growth in the size of the federal government. The city itself is heavily fortified during the Civil War. There's, and so there is a, a permanent uh, a growth in both the growth population, but a growth in a permanent population in DC in a way that there wasn't, say, during you know when your man Jefferson was was resident and half the the town left every summer. Um, and the Civil War led to, I think, a, a reconsideration about and Reconstruction did too about the place of DC within the Union. There are a whole bunch of discussions that happened in the 1870s about the the how to fit DC into this broader union now it's about especially that DC is a real city and not just a, an empty sort of shell of a place like it was uh, you know in, in 1800. Uh, DC for a brief moment has a congressional representative, a non-voting congressional representative in the 1870s, but they then take that away. They also take away home rule in the 1870s and they put DC uh, under the jurisdiction of three commissioners that are appointed by the president. So it becomes, um, you know, the, the, the amount of democracy within DC itself for the residents of DC, they get basically any 
degree of local control taken away from them. And it's that system that is established at the end of Reconstruction that stays in place in D.C. for most of the next century. Yeah, there's historic precedent for that because in the 1790s when they were building the district or designing mm. the district, not really building it yet, uh, they used a commissioner system with three commissioners appointed by the president. So, so there was a kind of back to the future aspect mm. of that. Uh, there is, to the extent that there was a, pol a political tradition in, in the district, uh, the government by commission is, is, is has, has claim to that. Yeah, but they had had, you know, 50 years of having, uh, you know, independent local government making decisions about local issues, uh, and that all gets sort of taken away from them. And, and obviously, this is a, a period in time in which there's a tremendous growth in D.C., uh, especially, you know, when we think about what happens to DC in, in, in the 30s and 40s, it becomes orders of magnitude bigger than it was uh, even beforehand. And to do so without any local uh, elected office was really problematic. Um, you know, the, 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 the situation we get into now, I think really sort of, uh, there's a, a really important moment that happens between sort of 1960 and uh, the early 1970s, I think that it's important to sort of think about how DC fits. Uh, and the first of these has to do with the, the 23rd Amendment, which is, a, you know, one of these amendments everyone forgets about uh, because it seems relatively non-controversial, but in some ways it complicates lots of things. And we'll see, we'll talk in a minute about how it complicates things. Frank, do you want to sort of summarize yeah. the, the 23rd Amendment? Well, frankly, I mean, I th in fact, I think the 23rd Amendment greatly complicates the question of D.C. statehood. Mm. 23rd Amendment uh, gives um, the district a vote in the Electoral College. So the, the, the district has a single vote in the Electoral College for president, and it acquires that by the uh, three votes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, thank you, David. Uh, it gives it three votes in the in the Electoral College. Um, and this is this is a crucial it's an attempt to address the the apparent injustice of having a large city in the capital of the country mm. uh, and that country that purports to be the world's leading democracy and its citizens not having a say in choosing the leader of the country. So it's meant to, it addresses that. What, what else do you have to say about the 23rd, David? Well, the, the interesting, if you look uh, at the ratification process, it's one of the amendments that's ratified the fastest. The only thing that's ratified faster is the 12th Amendment. Um, but it is not ratified by any states in the South. And so, uh, you know, I think it's the logic uh, of giving the Electoral College votes to the residents of DC was made a lot of sense to, to everybody except for people, you know, for, for, for Southern states. And I think that has a lot obviously to do with the context here of the civil rights movement uh, and various changes in, in sort of voting rights. Uh, and, and representation uh, in Congress and thinking about sort of one person, one vote and all those debates uh, were, were part and parcel of that. And the fact that DC has a very large African-American population. Oh, to be sure, right. <laughs> DC, DC, DC is, is a black majority city. It was uh, in, in uh, 1961 and it is obviously today. Uh, so the, 20, the 23rd Amendment in... Um, 1961, they're first able to elect, uh, have electors in 1964. Um, 
1967, uh, LBJ pushes to to expand the uh, represent the, the council that that governs the city to nine people. Um, in 1970, you have Congress authorizing DC to elect a non-voting uh, representative to Congress, uh, which means therefore that DC has had a non-voting representative to Congress uh, for 50 years. Uh, that's a seat that's been held by exactly two people, uh, Walter uh, Faultroy, uh, who held it for the first 20 years and Eleanor Holmes uh, Norton, who's held it for the past 30 years. So it's a fairly uh, stable seat, uh, although it doesn't actually get to, to officially do very much. Um, but then critically, so that happens in 1970. In 1973, uh, you have the creation of the Home Rule Act, which gives the residents of D.C. the ability to elect local government. Um, and this is something that people in D.C. have been pushing for, obviously, for years and years and years since it had been taken away. Uh, this happens right in the midst of the uh, Watergate uh, story. Um, in fact, if you watch All the President's Men, there's a brief mention of it in one of the, the scenes. Um, uh, but it, it's home rule, but it's very limited home rule in as much as the laws passed by the uh, city council in, in DC are, uh, can be overturned by Congress. They can deal, f fiddle with local funding issues. They, the city can't go into to debt. It has to pass a balanced budget. They can't place taxes on certain things or people so to, to sort of limit its authority. So it's, it's home rule, but it's only, um, it's fairly constrained home rule uh, compared to, to other uh, provinces. And the, and the situation that we end up with is since 1973 has basically been this, this one that, that, that uh, you've got DC having these electoral votes um, where they have some limited home rule, but they don't have any representation in Congress uh, beyond their non-voting member. Yeah, and so that's, that's, that's the context of where we are in terms of DC, but in terms of the, the broader context, David, there is a model, there's a precedent in the United States, of course, for adding states to the union. <laughs> the United States has been adding states to the union uh, from the outset almost. So, so there were 13 original states, there are yes. 50 <laughs> So We haven't and, done it though in 62 years. So it's been- right, I understand. I understand that. And I think that's part of the reason we're having a debate about it now in the way that in the 19th century, it was pretty common to add states to the union. This was not something people had trouble getting their heads around. Mm. So there's a territorial system set up via a series of like pieces of legislation in the 1780s and 90s. Basically, the way it works is uh, a territory, once it has a certain number of residents who can be our potential citizens. And this gets very complicated in terms of the uh, who's a citizen and who isn't in the, mm. in the early United States because there are issues about indigenous people and enslaved people who are excluded and so on. And those are important issues, but basically they set a number, originally it's 20,000, then it goes up. Once you have a certain number of citizens, they, if they adopt a constitution for their territory, a Republican constitution, mm. small r Republican, they can apply for statehood. 
up until that point, they're governed directly by the federal government. There's usually a territorial governor who's been who's been appointed. So they're directly governed by Congress in the way that the District of Columbia was to some extent. Mm. Um, but then they apply for statehood. And, and I'm simplifying a complicated process. But what we see is, according to this process, that uh, 37 more states joined the union mm. between 1791 and 1959. Um, and this system works pretty well, actually, in terms of as, as a means of imperial expansion. If you think of the, the 19th century as a great age of, of empires, actually, the American imperial model actually works pretty well um, mm. insofar as the new territorial acquisitions enter the union on, the, on an equal basis with the other states. Which is what makes it different from, say, the British colonies in different parts of the world in the 19th century. So, so uh, this model is well established. 37 states are added between 1791 and 1959. The last two being Alaska and Hawaii. Um, it's a long, complicated story. But why can't the District of Columbia become the 38th state to join the Union by this means? Or why shouldn't it? Well, uh, I, I see no reason why it shouldn't. Um, I think, you know, right now the residents of D.C. and, and uh, I was actually at one point a resident of D.C. I lived there for six years. Um, I was a child, so I wouldn't have voting rights then anyway. But, um, you know, we're in an anomalous situation right now where you and I, Frank, not living in the United States, can vote for members of Congress. But if we move to D.C., we would lose our right to vote for a member of Congress, you know, uh, and that strikes me as bizarre. Um, you know, it's well, it still more bizarre, David, would be if we have a colleague who's from Washington, D.C., and we probably do. Uh, they can't vote for a member of Congress right. <laughs> from abroad. Exactly. So so it's. Yeah, so if we move to Puerto Rico, we get no electoral votes at all. And it's, it's, right. it's very strange. Uh, system about about who gets to vote for what and, and depending on where they live or not. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the admission of a new state is always a political process. And so I think much of the debate that's happening in Congress is, is, is about these sort of theoretical issues about should the capital have be a state or not. Uh, you know, those kinds of things are often sort of secondary to, to who they think is going to win these seats. Um, and that's been true, you know, for, for uh, you know, every previous debate about state admission, uh, whether that's, you know, Missouri and Maine, whether that's Texas, you know, the, the, the state admission process is, is always California. It's always been connected to, you know, who they think is going to win those states and, and who, you know, has the, you know, so the, it's always a political process as, as well as a sort of ideological one. Which is worth, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, a really important point, David, and just for the benefit of our listeners who aren't following this too closely, mm. at the moment, Democrats strongly support adding D.C. as a state, and the Republicans are marshalling uh, arguments against it because the assumption is if D.C. becomes a state, the correct assumption, frankly, mm. is that the Democrats will, will pick up two new senators um, and, and Republicans are opposed to this. And so although this, this debate is being couched in, mm. in a lot of... Um, language about principles and so on and what the founders would have thought the debate got rather absurd at the end of last week uh this is about politics to, yeah. to a large extent and it's worth pointing out that the residents of dc are overwhelmingly in favor of statehood 
Uh, the last referendum they had on this was in 2016. 85% of the residents voted in favor of, of statehood. Right. right. Okay. Uh, and that includes uh, support for statehood is not only from Democrats in D.C., although it's an overwhelmingly Democratic city. The Republican Party of D.C. is also in favor of statehood. But um, so that, you know, the, the, the local politics of it are, are very much in favor. Um, but the Republican Party of D.C. is like three men and a dog, right? I mean, it's well, not to great. be sure, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> but so, sorry, David, I have a question for you before we talk about the the, the, the D.C. itself. Mm. Uh, you know, in, in preparing for this episode, I looked back at the uh, timing of the admission of states to the union, and most of it goes as you'd expect. So, in the 1790s, we get four. We get. I'm not going to go through the whole list. Mm. Tennessee and then Ohio in 1803 and then you get a bunch from the Louisiana territory um, or the Louisiana Purchase Territory that are added in, in the subsequent decades. One of the things we keep hearing and in part it's because Wyoming has a smaller population than DC uh, but you, you hear two things you hear about Wyoming but you also hear about um, North and South Dakota. Why are there two Dakotas when their populations are so small? In I'm asking you as the our 19th century guy yeah. in 1889 and 90 North and South Dakota, Montana, Washington, Idaho, and Wyoming were all added as states. What the hell was going on in 1889 and 90? And explain that, because I think that is important context for this. Okay, so so the uh, the person to read on this is, is Heather Cox Richardson, who has written a lot on this particular question. Uh, but the, the short answer is this is a moment in which the Republican Party was in control of both the White House and Congress and had been since the Civil War, but was rapidly losing power. Uh, and you have a number of very close elections then. Um, you know, this is one of those, the, the, the 1880s uh, and 1890s are, are those moments in which you have a couple of presidential elections where the person who gets the most votes doesn't get the most electoral college votes and you, know, you have the non-consecutive. Grover Cleveland terms and all those kinds of things. So politics was very, very close then as it, as it is today. And the Republican Party concluded that Westerners were overwhelmingly Republican. Some of this has to do with the Homestead Act. Some of this has to do with, with the Transcontinental Road and other things. That the people who are living in the Dakotas uh, and these other uh, Western states that are admitted in this sort of a rush to admit people, a rush to admit new states. They thought those are going to be reliable Republican uh, senators and reliable Republican votes to the Electoral College. Uh, and so there was a push to admit all of them while they still had control of Congress to do that. So uh, that's this, you know, the short answer of why did they rush to put all these new states in, including North and South Dakota, which really should be one state. Uh, my apologies, people who live in, in North and South Dakota who are, have very serious concerns about that, that uh, take that very seriously and see meaningful differences between those two states. Uh, but uh, you know, the reason for splitting them has less to do with geography or with uh, you know, the, the need to have two separate legislative bodies uh, for, for those two, two territories uh, as it is the need to have uh, four senators instead of two. And to a large extent, 
those hopes have been borne out. They paid, they've borne fruit for the past 130 years. Yeah, because apart from Washington State, those other five, North and South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, are reliably Republican to this day, and you know, and and return senators who are who are by and large loyal Republicans. There are moments and times in the history of those states when they're not yeah. necessarily loyal Republican no, states, but but in terms of of having an outsized influence on, in the Senate, uh, undoubtedly, the, the you know, these are states that have. have uh, their populations have, have grown since the admission, but not massively. Uh, North Dakota has had uh, population growth zeros since the 1930s. Uh, take that for what So, David, David, when 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 we talked about this at the end of last week, and as I mm. read about it over the weekend, sorry, uh, talked about doing this topic at the end of last week. Mm. It seemed like a no-brainer, and I'm glad we've done it. And this has been a really interesting conversation. And as usual, I've learned from you. Um, that's all great. I started out in favor of statehood for DC. I'm now against it. Really? Yes. And let me explain why. you hate democracy. Uh, why, 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 why yes, I hate it. <laughs> yes. Well, last week you said I <laughs> Yes, last week you said I love Thomas Jefferson. And by definition, loving Thomas Jefferson means you hate democracy. Uh, <laughs> no, let let, let me explain this to you. And I realize that this is a Republican talking point. So, so forgive me, but I, I haven't thought, I've thought a lot about this in the past two days. Uh, some Republicans are suggesting, suggesting a retrocession of the Maryland parts of DC to Maryland. Okay. It should be said the residents of DC are, are opposed to this as a solution. So I mm. think that's important. But that would be congruent with what happened earlier uh, in terms of the retrocession of Arlington and Alexandria to Virginia. Mm. So it makes sense. The other thing is, and, and my other arguments are more slightly ideological, but also practical and legal. I think the 23rd Amendment's a huge problem here because the 23rd Amendment does apply to the District of Columbia, that statehood is not straightforward. It's not simply a matter of both houses of Congress voting in favor of it and the president uh, signing that into signing that into into law. I don't think it's going to be that straightforward. Not least, first of all, we have the whole problem with the Senate and whether the Senate would vote for it, and I think that's doubtful. But that's not that's not a reason to oppose it. Uh, but but the the legal status of D.C. because of both the original Constitution but also the Twenty Third Amendment causes problems. Now, one of the solutions that's been proposed in the legislation is shrinking the district, right? So it'll basically be the area around the National Mall and the White House, the bits that the tourists visit, right? And okay, that, that's fine. And then you, you create the city around it. Yeah. That doesn't seem entirely satisfying to me. It's like the Vatican other city. issue, I, it is like Vatican City, which is fine. That's fine. Um, but then I guess my real issue with this is I don't like the argument of, okay, look, we're already bigger than Vermont and Wyoming. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we should have smaller, more smaller states. Our problem politically, or a problem politically in the United States is too many small states with too much influence, frankly. Wyoming being a case in point with its, you know, half a million mm -hmm. people having two senators when California has 40 million people and two senators. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure creating another small state even if it favors your side, 
is the solution to this problem. I actually think there's a problem there. I also think because of the legal status, because of the question about the 23rd Amendment, Hmm. that this would likely be adjudicated by the Supreme, have to be adjudicated by the Supreme Court. So no, you know, the, the current Supreme Court, of course, is, is loaded with GOP nominees. Mm. I just don't, I think that creating, I think there's a democratic deficit for the people of the District of Columbia. Mm. I completely agree with that. I accept that argument. I think the legal and political problems that would be caused by DC statehood, which would actually become a culture war issue, which would be played out over decades, mm. probably not worth the political benefit because this is a political question. I, you know what I think Democrats should do? I think they should win more Senate elections and, and that's the way to do it. And so I think I, I'm not, I, I, so I'd be in favor of retroceding much of the District of Columbia to, that's east of the Potomac River and north of the Potomac River to Maryland. So okay. to address the, the democratic deficit. I think we need political reform in the United States. There's no doubt about that. And I think we need senatorial reform. I think Puerto Rico's case for statehood is far stronger. It makes mm. perfect sense. And other territories that are truly are excluded politically from the United States. So I would, I would, I'm not averse to increasing the number of states. In researching this, I was looking at there was a map that went around in the in the middle of the la- of the of the 2010s mm. after the based on the 2010 census about rebalancing and redrawing the map the state maps in the United States coming up with 50 more or less equally sized states in yeah. terms of population with I don't know six and a half million people each you could do so we'll never do it but uh, in other words when Congress established the territorial legislation back in the 1790s there was a minimum number of people that should be in a state. Yeah. So that that principle is enshrined in American law and and political practice. I'm not sure 700,000 meets that. If you, I, I think 700,000 is too small for a state. Just as I think, it, so I'm happy to consolidate Vermont, New New Hampshire, and Maine. I'm happy to put in Wyoming with Idaho, whatever. I mean, if you want to do this, but I'm not sure creating another small state solves this problem. I oh, think it's yeah, actually I, I, it, it I, makes the problem worse. I would go the entire opposite direction and create. I think I think having f- fifty more states would even be better. Um, I think it makes sense to s- potentially split California into a variety. Oh, totally. You know, in which case, you know, because if you think about the threshold that that Vermont had to get to to be state number fourteen, you know, how many people did Vermont have in seventeen ninety? They sure as heck didn't have seven seven hundred thousand. You know they had like yes, but the country, but right, but the country in seventeen ninety only had four million people. Well, but I mean, I think in part of this is, and and this is a a separate debate, which I have in another episode. You know, the you know they capped the number of people in the House of Representatives eighty years ago. That's right. Yeah. Uh, when the country was you know, half the population that it is today, a third of the population in some ways that it is today, uh, and in which you didn't allow African Americans to vote, and so you know in terms of number of voters, it's yeah. You know, anyway, that, that's a that's a sec. How would your retrocession to Maryland then deal with the Twenty Third Amendment? That's an excellent question. I think, uh, well. Does, does 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 the Bidens is the only rep- people living in that district? <laughs> did they get to pick those three people? I mean, I thought he voted in Delaware, but he might relocate officially. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's an excellent question because it doesn't solve the Twenty Third Amendment 
problem, especially especially if we're heading towards a world of razor thin mm. uh, margins in the in in the electoral college, which we could be. Um, then then those three votes really matter or could well, matter. I mean, here's the I think the way to do it is is to link admission of statehood to the repeal of the you know because what's going to happen? Let's imagine DC gets admitted as a state, and they shrink down the federal district to being the the the, the mall. And, adjacent areas well then you repeal the 23rd amendment right but you would not get support to repeal the 23rd amendment for dc statehood you just wouldn't get it from but you get, you the get states DC you need statehood first because you don't need state legislature approval for a new state you just need congressional approval at a majority of congressional approval once that happens then and it looks like that area is going to get six electoral votes or something then, then you know you can get a Republican in in the House to propose repealing the the twenty third amendment, and you could probably get a motion move moon to do that. I mean, we've repealed amendments before. Okay, we've only done it once, but this seems like a place where that could be a, a fairly easy fix, um, and in which state legislatures, which are controlled predominantly by Republicans at the moment, uh, would be in favor of. Uh, Maybe sorry. I don't. Uh, yeah, but so, so David, I, I I think you're slightly misunderstanding my position on this. I'm not in favor of super states necessarily. I think we mm. should break up states. I, th I think we have too many. I, I think we have a problem of too many states that are too small and too many states that are too large, and we need mm. more states that are medium sized So the question is, <laughs> the what's the states. ideal size? Yeah. What what's the what, yeah? What is the what's the floor? for a new state mm -hmm. because I think 700,000 is too small. I think, I think four or 5 million, like the size of Scotland is a good size. I think that's a good size for a political community. Okay. Um, that, that would involve sort of merging the Dakotas and uh, probably Montana together into one big thing. It'd be okay Fine. with that. Okay. Yeah, of course I'd be, I, I, I don't care. <laughs> um, you, no, 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 hey, so, so, places, you don't care okay that's fine um, um, no no but that, that that would be absolutely fine of course and, and we could think more creatively uh you know so i think americans abroad should be a virtual state i think we should you know there are eight million of us i think that you know we're not represented you know or, or or we're represented by the wrong people our interests are not represented so so i think you could have americans abroad as a virtual state i need to, i think you need to think about we should rethink uh, indigenous citizenship, particularly mm. or statehood, given given the uh, just given the complicated history there. I, mean, I think I think we should. None of this will happen. I, I understand. <laughs> yes, we're okay. two guys. We're, we're, we're two guys on a podcast. We're two guys on a podcast yelling at each other. But but I, you could rethink all of this. But I but in terms of the practical day to day stuff, I think seven hundred thousand is probably too small for yeah. a state. Now, having said all that, and given that we live, in, we have to live in the real world. I would, DC statehood is probably better than all of the alternatives, which are impossible. Now, uh, I'm, I'm still trying, because I'm, I'm intrigued by, by your retrocession to Maryland idea, which I think is also, uh, you know, as you point out, popular among uh, some Republicans, including Mitt Romney. Does Maryland want them? I don't know. Okay, I suspect, uh, and they don't want, and they've said they don't want the majority of people in the district said they don't want to go to Maryland. So I think so there's a pro, there's a, a real a, problem. Arranged marriage there that's uh, probably not a not a happy one. Yeah, but all of these, you know, these things, these states that people cling to, 
you know, they're imagined communities. They were, you know, they, they're all art, they're all artificial creations. Well, but to be sure, but that doesn't mean they're not meaningful. Says someone who is, you express your loathing of New York and your affinity for Boston earlier in this, uh, you know, those are all imagined uh, loyalties. Well, I just want to say that at 6 million people, Massachusetts is probably the Goldilocks state, but anyway. <laughs> right. Um, now, now that we've dealt the important political questions, the what are we going to call? You know, let's imagine DC does get admitted as a new state. What should we call that new state? Because we can't call it Washington. We've already got one of those. Yeah, that's a good the, question. The, the legislation. Well, there, so the, the DC statehood movement's been around for a while. For a while, the popular name was New Columbia as the state name, but people have ditched that for obvious reasons. The legislation that just passed the House has, has wants to call it the State of Washington, comma, Douglas Commonwealth. And named after Frederick Douglass, the longtime resident yeah, of D.C. So that way you keep yeah, the D.C. I, I got, part. Okay, good. I just want to make sure it was a... No, 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 I get it. I think that's... that's um, well, you could put it to the people to call it what they want. I mean, actually calling it Douglas, the state of Douglas, would be a great idea. Um, but I don't think, again, who, who cares about the initials DC apart from the comic book publisher? Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and my brother, David. Uh, <laughs> um, but but um, I, 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 I'm less exercised about that. I, I think calling it Douglas would be a good name. I mm. think that would be a really good name. Um, but... I I would be willing to put that to a referendum of the people who live there. Okay. I, I don't I don't like a complicated multi-part name. It's like the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Uh, it just it's too much. It's too much. It's too much. Okay. Uh, yeah, and some states are commonwealths, and it's not entirely queer to me what that means. But no. uh, we'll, we'll leave that. I mean, between. what's wrong with Columbia? What's wrong with Columbia? Well, because I think. That, that's associated with Christopher Columbus and Columbus as, as a problematic figure, especially in a, a minority majority city. Right. I think that's why they shifted from, from New Columbia to, to the, and obviously if, as a black majority city, having it named after Frederick Douglass uh, would be uh, important and significant. Well, my view would be if this comes to pass, it is for the people of the new state to decide what they decide want to them, call, themselves. call themselves. So that's that's a good call. Uh, yes, yeah, so we haven't had any states rename themselves ever. That's too bad. We should we should have they should they should, they should reconsider some of their names. Oh, and and uh, in one of Jefferson's earlier plans for Western territory, this is in the mid seventeen eighties when he was at his most visionary and nuts. Um, you know, he came <laughs> up with suggested names for about 14 western states none of which came to pass that or mm. most of which didn't come to pass i'd have to look at the list before i say none um but he was drawing on what he believed to be indigenous names but also classical references it's some crazy stuff it's it's really interesting the names he comes up with. you're right we, we need more creativity in, in state names you know well, like um, north, north dakota at one point i think this was about 20, 30 years ago, considered removing the north part of the North Dakota and just becoming Dakota. So they thought that'd be better branding. Um, and then everyone told them that was stupid. And they kept it. I mean, it would have been interesting if they dropped the Dakota and just called themselves north. North. Well, that would be appropriate <laughs> uh, given the... Um, 
anyway. Uh, so we will see. I think the odds are that, that, that this is a, a probably a dead bill in the Senate. I can't imagine. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, well, one, I mean, one, one serious point to make at the end. I mean, one of the issues around all this and why it's going to die in the Senate is because of the filibuster. And it seems to me that one of the things that animates this movement for new states, uh, at least on the part of many Democrats, is to try and solve this problem as they see it about the filibuster. Hmm. Uh, and we've talked about the filibuster in the past. We probably need to do a whole episode on it. We may have even done that. I can't remember. Uh, but the, the filibuster is the big problem here. And the filibuster is not in the Constitution. This is something that could be changed. Uh, you know, so it, there, there's, a, there's a natural justice case in favor of statehood for D.C., terms of just if you believe in democracy this mm. seems appropriate i find that more compelling uh, or most compelling of all but there's also the political challenge and that political challenge which is enlisted people many people who are expressing strong views about dc statehood who don't really care one way or the other they care about the politics of this and this gets back to the problem in the senate and just how inherently undemocratic the senate is both in terms of its makeup but also its procedures and the filibuster. And the filibuster is a huge problem. And that's why DC statehood is likely to fail. Yeah, I think that's, I think it'd be close if they put it up to a vote. I'm not sure that they'll get that far, but uh, it would require uh, some leg pulling or some uh, negotiations to, to, to make that happen. Although, you know, uh, just thinking back to other states' admissions, you know, the fight over Missouri's admission was a fight and they found a compromise around that. Texas was a fight about admission of Texas, California, likewise. Um, Kansas, like, you know, so there's been, this won't be the first time that, that a fight over admission of a new state has been, been at play in the Senate. So, uh, and all those states are now states now. So there, there may be hope yet. Right. Uh, time for last drops, Frank, what you got? Right, I want to promote uh, the forthcoming Fennel Lecture in History here at the University of Edinburgh. The Fennel Lecture is our highest profile public uh, event each year in history, and it will be delivered this year on May 13th at 7 p.m. Edinburgh time, which is 2 in New York, uh, 11 in, on the West Coast. Uh, uh, we're really thrilled that Annette Gordon-Reed of Harvard will be giving the lecture on her new book on Juneteenth. Um, this Then is Texas is her title, uh, and we will put the details in the show notes. It's a virtual event, so it'll be online, but you, can, you need to register for it, so we'll put the details about how to register for it in the show notes and, and uh, when we share them, but just to remind you, or if you have any questions, just email myself or David, but the Fennel Lecture by um, Annette Gordon-Reed, May 13, 2021, at 7 p.m. It's going to be, be great. I'm, I'm very excited about it. I'm very much looking forward to the lecture. I'm looking forward to, to getting and reading the book. I think that's on my top of my pile of, of summer reading to do. Uh, yeah, me too. I might try and read it in June just for the sake of, of uh, you know, having it being chronologically uh, relevant. Excellent. David, what's your last drop? Uh, well, I want to uh, point people to a, an article in the, the Washington Post about uh, Mary Ann Vecchio, uh, who was the girl, she was 14 years old at the time, who was, whose photo was taken in 1970 at Kent State. Uh, and it's an article about her life, how she ended up being uh, at Kent State then in, in 1970 and what's happened to her in the uh, 50 years since then and how, how 
being in that particular photo has, has shaped her life in, in quite profound ways. Um, so it's, it's a really good read uh, and sort of exploration about how uh, sort of an accident of history in some ways really can, can transform one's life and make one's, uh, you know, she's, she's in every textbook that is assigned to high school students and undergraduates. And uh, you know, what, what does that mean to a person uh, who, who didn't, wasn't planning at the age of 14 to becoming a historical figure? Mm. So it's a great little article. I'd highly recommend that. Good. Great. Until next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.